You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 86, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. David Graham, an infectious disease physician located in Billings, Montana. In addition to being the author of FI Physician and a Financial Independence Physician Coach, he's also my high school classmate who we sort of reconnected because of last episode. And so let me talk briefly about last episode for those of you who listened to episode 85, where I went into at least a mini rant at the beginning of the show about the six-foot rule. Dr. Graham very kindly and gently sent me an article saying that pretty much I was, we'll say, I'll accept 95% being wrong, maybe even more, 97, uh, when I said that it's actually related to D squared. So basically it was a contention that the reason it's a six-foot rule is not because of any sort of physical uh, properties of the sneeze, as much as it was the fact that your likelihood of being infected is more a reflection of your distance from the person and that the viruses disperses similar to radiation. This is, like I said, pretty much totally wrong. And so make a call upon me. If you've been telling people this, I apologize. And so <laughs> I, was to- I was totally wrong. Uh, there's actually an MIT paper where they went to the physics of the sneeze. And that is because although... Without a doubt, that is how radiation exposure and attenuation occurs. Uh, of course, viruses, water droplets are entirely dependent on physical world, which includes evaporative loss, airflow, the size of particles, the force with which one sneezes or coughs. And this basically puts it so that within five feet, and you, know, you could even say six feet, that your likelihood of getting any sort of significant viral exposure drops down. Now this course changes entirely, depends on the viral load someone has, and so that was not something that was really in the paper, but again, paper's there. So the six feet foot rule is more reflection of how far someone can toss a virus onto you from across the room. I'd like to special shout out to my two new patrons at patreon.com slash the paradox if you want to become a financial supporter of the show. Be greatly appreciated in these times, obviously. Uh, it helps encourage me. It provides the resource I need to pay for the website and the storage, and et cetera, et cetera. It also keeps my wife off my back for doing a venture which doesn't pay great, right? <laughs> so, uh, but it certainly gives me encouragement, and uh, that's why I keep doing the show, aside from the fact that I really enjoy learning all these new things from really intelligent, uh, interesting people. The two new patrons are Dr. Anthony Perry, who's a retired physician from Florida, and Mr. Tom McMillan, who's on the Michigan State Board of Education. So shout out to you guys. Thank you so much. If you're a patron supporter, there are extra bonus things you get, extra episodes, content. If you're in the $8 or more a month category, you will get a special 
really cool sticker that I have uh, for the Paradox, which you can toss on your computer, computer bag, wherever you want. I'm going to preface the show by saying that I was probably put into a depression for about two days after, <laughs> after having this discussion with Dr. Graham, and it was totally unintentional on his part. Uh, it's just, I think, with the severity of the disease and um, sort of how we come out to the other end. And this is something that no one really knows, and so this is all conjecture on his part, and only time will tell how this pandemic ends. But it, we know at some point it will end. This is not something we're going to live with forever, but it might be a significant amount of time. And so I think that's part of our discussion today, You know, not only how it ends, but why it will take a lot longer than we probably think or want. And so I think that's an interesting discussion we have. It's sobering. And... Uh, made me sort of rethink plans and thoughts of how, you know, life is going to be structured for the next little while, certainly just within my sphere in anesthesia and how I'm going to have to work in the OR. I think this goes also for surgeons, the additional equipment and masks function we're going to have to use is different than we use now. And it's really just a pain. <laughs> Put simply, a lot of things, there'll be new, I think the new universal precautions Whereas I think you know, Dr. M did a good job of pointing out that before we were training, there were physicians who obviously never wore gloves for most things. And now they're sort of universal. Whenever you put an IV, the lines in, whatever, if there's a potential for fluid contact, you wear gloves. And the same thing the dentist. I mean, I, if you're old enough, you remember going to the dentist when they just had their hands in your mouth. They didn't have any gloves. And then a HIV happened and the... 80s and then suddenly they're wearing masks and face shields and gloves and that was just sort of that's now just what it is like for someone who's younger they don't know that it was ever any other way and it almost seems crazy that you put your hand in someone's mouth <laughs> without gloves and I guess looking back on it it did seem kind of nuts and what's funny is I remember training and one of the senior physicians who was training me when I was actually a fourth year medical student intubated someone well for one thing he did it without a laryngoscope which was Impressive. I think he did it partly to impress me and make me feel inadequate, uh, but also he had no gloves. He just kind of opened the guy's mouth and tossed the endotracheal tube in, which is pretty remarkable, I mean, in and of itself. But the guy was obviously easy to intubate, and, but I was a senior medical student, so of course I, you can't do anything. Um, but I think just that I was more struck, I think, not by the fact that he didn't use a ringoscope, but the fact that he just used his hands without any gloves and put in someone's mouth. Uh, so there's just a different era you grow up in. And so I think those are just some changes that I'm going to have to get used to. The other parts of how life might be different, what is going to be available and what's not going to be available. I think those are, you know, things worth pondering whether they happen or not. I guess we don't have much control over them, uh, but I'll probably go into an in episode 87. I'll talk a little bit about hopefully with another week that goes by, we'll have a little bit better handle things, but I'll talk about coronavirus and the response and uh, you know, what we're really hoping to accomplish and, where we are sort of, you know, from a nation, from a state, from localities. But one of the key takeaways from today's talk is not so much uh, how the panic ends, although I think it's really fascinating sort of his thoughts of how it ends and potentially that this will be the last pandemic that we ever have. And so that's kind of an interesting discussion. But we'll discuss too on coronaviruses, how they become endemic, uh, how they just sort of become a virus that just circulates forever. And the coronavirus we have now, we assume at one time it was more lethal, and now they just cause the cold for people. So perhaps at one time they were as bad as this one is, but you know, who knows how many, many years ago those were that first were introduced into the human species. 
If you haven't had a chance, I'd recommend you go back to episode 83, which is at theparadox.com slash 083, where I talk about how my family has navigated life without health insurance. We've been without health insurance since November, and as we're recording this now, it's almost May. And what the financial implications have been, how it's been easy to work out or hard uh, or challenges. And um, anyway, I think that's a really interesting discussion. If you're interested in that sort of thing, I would recommend you listen to the show. My family uses Samaritan uh, Health Sharing, which is at SamaritanMinistries.org. I'd highly recommend you check them out. It's been really smooth. It's been really easy. Uh, I just get a monthly share notice. I send a check to some person else in the country who has some sort of need. My family has been on the receiving end of that sort of right as soon as we uh, got the membership. My wife had a medical procedure she had to have done, some imaging, which ended up being totally fine. But uh, we've been through that process as far as getting paid back. And uh, I don't know, it's really kind of a neat thing because I think this is sort of, if we're the way this show has been, it's a great way to sort of work things out as far as removing that third party payer from the system. Essentially, you kind of have a third party and then you have someone else, but you're the one shopping around. You're shopping for your medications. You're finding your physicians. You're finding discounts for tests. You are finding low-cost alternatives for your medications, for your imaging, for laboratories. And so this adds the competitive market forces that we tend to think was more effective in controlling price and at least getting a less of a mismatch from the supply and demand side of things. And so I think it's a great thing. It's been wonderful for my family. Uh, the Samaritan Ministries is obviously a Christian-based organization, so if you're not Christian, you have to use a different service. Most of the ministries are Christian. There's one that's Jewish, I believe. I'm not aware of the name of that. But if you go to Samaritan Ministries, you sign up, you find out about it or whatever, you can certainly write my name down there as a referral. I'd be more than appreciative if you do that. Uh, but I think it'd be a great thing to do. Whatever share ministry you can find that fits well for, with you and you feel comfortable with, I think it's a great alternative to having health insurance. But that being said, I'll go ahead and introduce my former classmate, class of 92 in Okemos High School, Go Chiefs, Dr. David Graham, an infectious disease physician in Billings, Montana, on coronavirus, how the pandemic ends. Enjoy. Welcome I'm here with my old friend and actually high school classmate, Dr. David Graham. He's an infectious disease physician out in Billings, Montana. Dave, thanks so much for joining me on The Paradox. Hey, thanks, Eric. I, I love your podcast. You do a great alternative podcast. You you like mixing things up, don't you? Yeah, I well, I always say that my show is, I mean, it's to try and explain medicine to people who both are in the profession, so to have give you a better understanding, and for people who are not in the profession, to understand what we're dealing, why you're not getting the care you want, generally. People who are finding innovative ways to get around regulatory burdens, uh, and then Honestly, but the show is primarily me just trying to discover and learn things and uh, to things that I find interesting and, so, and people I find interesting. And so that's kind of what the show's been. And so I think people kind of enjoy sort of going on a journey with me. And so it does get a little different as far as uh, the topics. Uh, but I think things are, that makes it a little bit interesting that it's not always the same sort of um, subject, I think. So well, we live that's in why, interesting that's times. Interested. Well, yes. And I think the, the Chinese proverb was, is, and may you never live in interesting times. Right, right. right. Yeah. So we're recording this at near the end of April, um, in the midst of the coronavirus, um, outbreak or pandemic in the United States. But let's talk briefly before we start on into that discussion, just briefly describe, uh, who you are as far as, uh, where you, what your training is and specialty and 
um, I guess your practice? Sure. Well, let's go ahead and date ourselves. We graduated in 1992, right? Go Chiefs. And I was in, in <laughs> Ann Arbor for seven years and then uh, went to Los Angeles for MedPeds and stayed there for infectious disease. Uh, and then wasn't really a fan of the big city. So I, I decided to go to the metropolis of Billings, Montana. Uh, 100,000 people here, and uh, it's been 16 years. It's two small community hospitals. It, it's flyover country is what it is. And, you know, uh, it's uh, it's been an interesting place to have a family, and I've got cows and horses and some land. And and uh, it's, it's certainly not what I saw when I was growing up, but I, I think a lot of us are probably in different places than, than we thought we would be. No question. I mean, I think that's, if there's one interesting thing about life is that there are twists and turns that you cannot anticipate. I mean, whether it's meeting a spouse and, and moving someplace different or in a career, I mean, for the most part, no one grows up thinking I'm going to be an infectious disease physician, right? Or an anesthesiologist. Uh, so those are things that just kind of happen in some ways and some fork of the road that it sparks an interest when you're uh, in your career. So you're in, so you're in Billings, which is obviously a very small town. Uh, we'll talk about coronavirus because you wrote some a real interesting piece, which will be linked in the on the show notes at theparadox.com, and it's about reopening of Montana. Right now, in the news, of course, is that we have the pandemic. States have variably locked down their states, stay at home orders, um, limiting gather large gatherings, and those sorts of things. We have very onerous restrictions in the state of Michigan. Other states are more liberal uh, as far as you know, more open. What's what has uh, gone on in Montana? Because of course, nothing like New York City, uh, and that's usually what we hear on the news. So, what's gone on in Montana, and then what are your problems with the, I guess the the plan to reverse the things that have been going on in Montana? Yeah, well, you know, taking a step back, the the thing that we're not getting out of this pandemic is is our news media is so New York centric that everyone thinks that you know people are dying left and right. And in my city of 100,000, we've had 77 cases in total. Um, and we have large areas of our state, you know, we have areas of our state bigger than the Northeast of, of the United States that have had no cases at all. So that we would view this as a homogeneous process. It's not, the pandemic affects all of us, all of us differently. And then, so the next thing is that the uh, federal guidelines uh, came out um, what are they called? The um, uh, Open America Up Again guidelines. Right. And, and, and I mean, frankly, they're a disaster. They, they really lack vision and the complexity level is wrong. Uh, it, it exacerbates the problem that we've been hearing out of the White House task force, which is they're not telling us the truth. You know, they're, they're lying to us. Uh, they're, they're saying mm -hmm. things like um, we're going to contain this. We're going to be back in stadiums again. And that Fauci and... Um, the doctor that wears the scarves, is her name? Yeah, Burks? Yes. Yeah, that, that they would be complicit with this story is, is just beyond me. So, so we have these guidelines, um, you know, out of the federal task force, and the CDC has been no help in this whole process. Where has the CDC been? And um, it, <laughs> Well, yeah, they're preventing things from happening. Yeah, don't, don't get me started on that. So, so um, but the point is, is that some of us are ready to open. We have met the gating criteria. Our cases are down. We have, you know, minimal reserves, but we've, we've got reserves of PPE. Um, we're testing. Um, so we're, we're ready to start. We're ready to get out of the gate and open up again, but we really have, you know, kind of poor guidance. And, and that's, that's not true across the country. Like, for instance, California, 
um, their governor. Uh, it's just a preliminary plan, but his his speech was awesome. Like what California is looking to do to reopen California, and, and it's the whole West Coast, right? It's California, Oregon, and Washington. Like the vision there was truly inspirational, but but fundamentally, Eric, it started with the truth. He said, "We're going to have yeah. cases. We're going to have deaths. This is going to be a process." Um, you know, and then it goes on to protecting the vulnerable people. Since we're gonna have cases, we we have to worry about about the vulnerable people, where where that's gonna affect surge capacity in the hospitals, right? So not only is that the right thing to do, it's actually you know good for the whole region if you focus on um, the folks that are gonna have the hardest time with this. So um, and then and then next it goes on to the actual steps you can take, which don't involve these big blocky changes and then just, you know, diving off the cliff, you make a change and you see what happens, right? If you, if you change anything, it's going to take two weeks, three weeks before your numbers change. So the, the problem I have with the Montana plan is that it treats the state uh, as a whole state. It doesn't explicitly say, well, you're going to have different problems in rural communities than you have in moderate-sized cities as you have in big cities. And it doesn't allow us to change our mitigation efforts depending on where we live. And then it just dumps us all these changes all at once. So, you know, this is the problem with the federal guidelines is there's three stages. Well, there's actually four because we're in stage zero right now. And then we go to stage one where a lot of stuff opens up. Well, what happens if things go wrong? we're back to shelter in place. So it, it starts there and it, it gets worse, but. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, uh, that the, the problem is fundamentally is that people don't understand what our overall goals are for this, yeah. this fighting this pandemic. Right. I mean, it has been, it is initially was flattened the curve, which, which essentially is saying that we're going to accept the fact that people are going to get sick, how sick they get, whether they're, how many fatalities there are, we don't know. All we know is that people are going to get sick. And all we have, all we can do really as a society, a country, state, whatever, you know, community is to treat those who are sick. Hope we have enough resources, whether it's the hospitals, uh, personal protective equipment, you know, medications, whatever, that we have enough stuff and that we're not overwhelming the system. And so by flattening the curve, by, by smooth, by not having everyone get sick all at once, we allow the opportunity to at least maximize our, the ability to treat people within the hospital setting but we're not going to stop people from getting sick in the end. Right. Yeah. So, you know, shutting it down as, and honestly, we didn't have to shut it down. We never had a curve. We had a line, so you can't flatten a line. <laughs> so, but, but retrospectively, I'm kind of happy we did shut, shut things down because there is value in time, right? There's value in getting your surge plans in place and getting people prepared mm -hmm. for this, that there's value in learning that you can't sit next to someone anymore. You know, you got to sit six feet away from them. So we're learning a little bit about medicines, but, you know, you and I both think that medicines are going to be disappointing. Um, you know, we're learning about vaccines, but frankly, vaccines aren't going to solve this either. Um, so, so there's value in time, but, you know, there are unintended consequences beyond just the economic consequences of, of shutting it all down. Yeah, it has, it has, sadly, this, this whole discussion about ending the pandemic or sorry, not ending the pandemic, but ending the, the, the restrictions has become a political one instead of a scientific one. And I, I feel like the medical community is maybe at the forefront of causing a lot of confusion with this whole process. I don't know if they don't understand it or, you know, there's so many people who say stay at home, don't do all these things. 
and they give the impression that if you don't do these things, then no one's ever going to get this coronavirus. But I, I mean, I think we have to, that was never the, the goal. That was never the point of the whole, the whole uh, closures. It was always just to, again, prevent these, these capacity surges where that, you know, to overwhelm the system, but it was never to prevent everybody from getting sick. It's just, cause I think it's just going to be part of, it's going to be part of our lives now. Yeah. And that, that is what is frustrating is that, you know, since I knew we weren't going to have a surge, I've been thinking about what's next for a long time now, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot of people over there that, that can't think about what's next and, and we're not going to stay closed forever. We're, we're going to open up. Um, and how can we do that in a responsible way um, that that is that makes progress? So your initial assessment with Montana was there really wasn't because Montana is not a large metropolitan city like New York. We're a rounding well, you know, error. People, is what we are right. I mean, New York's got like eight million people in you know, a teeny tiny little area, yeah. and you've got. Yeah, I don't know. Are there a million people? Yeah, we got a million people. So they probably have more people, you know, on the 20th floor and above in Manhattan than we have in the whole state. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So totally different, different types of places. And this is the, and you know, I guess you could even go back to the founders, right? This is sort of the argument for federalism, for, uh, for having the states have their own, uh, you know, approach to things. And the reason, and the explanation that you want to try and have the, the, the sort of the closer to the ground uh, for governance the better because they're going to better understand the situation and it's because it, you can't have a one size fits all central planning sort of uh, process right. because New York's nothing like, you know, Billings, which is nothing like Grand Rapids. And then even within the state, and I think this is the point that you talked about in your paper about Montana, that even Montana is very diverse too, right? I mean, you have in Michigan, we have, as you know, we have Detroit, which has been in the news and there was very busy. There are lots of cases and there are lots of fatalities and lots of people got sick. Uh, wasn't enough to overwhelm the hospitals and cause, you know, terrible, um, you know, bodies piling up and things like that and not enough equipment. Uh, but the rest of the state has been not unaffected, but pretty much there's hardly been anything going on in, in comparison. And yet the whole state is treated as the same. You got it. Yeah. What is, what, what is it like for, I mean, like, what is it like in Montana? I mean, cause I assume that the governor's running everything there, right? Right. Right. And I think, you know, it, it is great that the feds have said, you guys figure it out, the states figure it out. So we're going to have 50 experiments, but we need to have thousands of experiments because each community is different. Right. So when it, when it comes down to it, fundamentally, healthcare is delivered locally. Right. Public health is locally. People talk to people on yeah. a local basis so that our response to uh, COVID-19, our reopening of our economy has to be a local process too. And it's frustrating when you get uh, people, um, you know, Helena is further from the east side of the state than Boston is from New York City. So you're having someone from Boston tell people in New York City what to do. That that doesn't make a ton of sense, does it? No, no. right, yeah. Yeah, and so every community is going to have to come at this a little different. There, there's going to be things we all have in common but things that work in population centers probably won't be uh, as effective uh, in, in local areas, you know? So you have communities in Michigan where you can open up the county and both stores in the county can open up, right? And they would be just fine. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. But but that's a little bit different when, you know, if you got to go down 40 flights of stairs to get to the mini market on the corner and there's 80 other people there, that, that's a very different thing. Or, you know, you got to get on the subway. 
you know, frankly, our subways in Montana are a lot cleaner than they are in New York because we don't got any. Yeah, right. Do you, uh, and, and that's so this is an interesting thing that I've been thinking about. You know, when you look at a city like New York City, obviously, it, it's hard to know for sure. I mean, the recent studies coming out, they're trying to do serology tests, which is basically saying who's had antibodies and who's developed antibodies against the virus, which suggests that those people have been infected, whether they have exhibited symptoms, whether they were really sick or whatever. And I don't know, it's debatable, I suppose, but it looks like 20% of New York City has sort of been infected right. by the coronavirus, which... Uh, <clears throat> But other parts of the state are like, you know, two or three percent. And I suspect it's similar in lots of places like, you know, even Montana. Would you expect Montana and other rural areas to experience the same levels eventually of in infection rate uh, of like, you know, approaching herd immunity, like 50, 60 percent or whatever we might think it might end up having to be? Or is it or would you expect it to be still a lot lower? Maybe you won't really hardly ever see it. Yeah, that, that that's an interesting question. And, and it brings up this frustration I've had all along with containment. You know, we've been talking about trying to contain this when, you know, the WHO more than a month ago gave up on containment. So we know the virus is here. We know it's going to circulate. <clears throat> we know the end goal is herd immunity, right? So if we crack down too much, we're not giving the virus enough room to have asymptomatic cases. And, and you look at, you know, maybe 60 or 80% of cases are asymptomatic. Um, you look at the, so the other frustration is that, you know, we have a lot of false negatives uh, on our testing currently. And, and that mm -hmm. blows my mind because the problem with PCR testing is that it's too sensitive, right? So how is it we have a test that we're missing, you know, is it 70% that it's uh, sensitive? Is it 90%? Regardless, the problem with PCR is that it's too sensitive, so, you know, we're missing people in the hospital every day that have COVID-19 and exposing our staff to this, but yet they're not coming back in, in droves sick. So there, there's more than, than what's going on. And, and, you know, if we talk about how much herd immunity do you need, it's probably related to the, the R naught, right? How contagious mm -hmm. it is. And if you're in contact with less people every day, um, you're going to have less opportunity to spread it to multiple people. So I would almost certainly think that, you know, perhaps we're going to need 50% immunity in rural areas where, you know, ur urban areas might have 80%, um, you know, before they get herd immunity. But, you know, that that's all guessing, right? As of late April, we're not even sure you get immunity to this. Yeah, it, that's the tricky thing about the, I mean, amongst many things, right, that it, there's so much unknown about this uh, disease. It is, uh, I, I talk about this with my wife all the time, it is so strange to have, and maybe it, you probably have more experience with this, right, it, but to have a virus that gets someone sick, can kill someone, gets them so sick, and then other people are completely asymptomatic. It, I, I, I don't know that anyone gets the flu and is like, feels totally fine and never knows that they had the flu. Maybe people do because we don't test for yeah. them, but... I feel like you always know you had the flu. <laughs> if you can, yeah, that, you may you may get very you know levels of sickness and you know, but you kind of always know it. It's so, it's so strange yeah. that this one that you can. And that's the absolute problem with this is that pandemic planners keep comparing this to influenza, and this is not 1918 H1 influenza that that's going to decimate um, the world. This is not you know shift and drift. This is not um, a vaccine. This is not a medicine. Uh, 
coronaviruses, it's fascinating because we actually have endemic coronaviruses, right? We have a multiplex PCR and we can test kids. And, you know, you go into any daycare uh, anywhere across the country during any season, not just in the winter, and you swab kids' noses and you're going to find, you know, three to five percent of them have one of these endemic coronaviruses. Um, so, and they're asymptomatic too. So that's the other great mystery right now is why are kids not getting this? Um, we can actually yeah. learn a lot by looking at the endemic coronaviruses. So we, we do have experience with these things. And frankly, like in kids, oftentimes if they get sick, it's because they're co-infected. They have, um, you know, an, uh, an endemic coronavirus in RSV or influenza. So um, this is kind of what we would expect from coronaviruses, honestly. Try and explain why it's different. I mean, whether it comes from, uh, on the standpoint of, developing a vaccine or medications for treating it and sort of how the, how this virus behaves differently than the flu. Uh, so we could, we could nerd out quite a bit on this. So, um, but so influenza is the goat, right? It is the greatest, greatest of all time that it can um, mix with a pig and a bird and out pops this novel uh, strain that yet is still very infectious, um, but humans have no immunity to it. Um, that it can have these shifts and then yet every year change just a little bit, these drifts to fool our immune system um, really makes it on a league of its own. So if we look at other respiratory viruses, uh, nothing is like influenza. So, but then, you know, we've had SARS, we've had MERS, right? Those are both coronaviruses. Um, But what happened with those is they actually had a very high mortality rate, but they weren't well adapted to humans. They didn't transmit from human to human very well. So what do we have with uh, SARS-CoV-2? Um, we have a virus that, that probably came from bats, right? It made the species jump, and it is relatively efficiently transmitted from human to human. Um, it does that efficiently, uh, and it gets into the upper and the lower respiratory tract. So uh, unlike some respiratory viruses, it does have a tendency to cause pneumonia. And then um, it, it does cause death in some people, you know, through ARDS, right? And ARDS is kind of an end-stage process of lung disease. And really, you know, Eric, what I worry about is what what effect have we had on ARDS mortality in the last 20 years of medical science? Not much. Not much, right? We have not improved mortality from ARDS. And then how many medicines have we had to treat the common cold in the last 100 years? Not many. (laughs) Right. So there's actually things like Placonorol. So we do have medicines that work, but there's a lot of side effects. So if you're treating the common cold, you're not going to tolerate a lot of side effects. Right. So if someone's dying in the ICU, sure, we'll we'll take some toxicity if we can get them better. But again, by the time they're in the the ICU, it's the ARDS picture. So and then, you know, if we're talking about vaccines with coronavirus, there's actually the worry that it can make the disease worse. That's the experience we've had with a couple vaccines. But fundamentally, here's the problem with vaccination. Here's why vaccination's not going to work, is who, who dies from coronavirus? Who dies from COVID-19? The people who don't re- respond to vaccines, the old. You, you got it. It's the elderly, the people that don't form an immune response to vaccination. So the best we can hope for is some disease modification. Okay. So to back up a little bit, for those who are listening who aren't familiar with the terms we use there, so ARDS is acute respiratory distress syndrome. That's basically where you have uh, 
essentially lung failure that often is associated with sepsis and people get really sick and need the ventilator support, which is, you know, what you're seeing lots of times in this um, coronavirus. Uh, I feel like the problem with, with the vaccine, people are waiting for this vaccine to come. There's been no guarantee that a vaccine will work, like you said, and people can get even more sick getting the vaccines. And, you know, if you look at the flu vaccine, we have the elderly, we push the elderly to get it, but they don't usually, it doesn't help them a whole lot. But we hope that the young people who can, will prevent, will basically create that herd immunity, right? I mean, that's sort of the thought with the vaccinations for influenza. Right. And, um, and so what, I mean, how do you see this thing playing out? I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine that, that, uh, that we're just going to accept the fact that we'll never be able to gather in large crowds ever again in the history of mankind, right? I mean, that doesn't seem like a viable option for living. So I, I can actually tell you exactly how this ends, Eric. Um, you, well, that's great will, because I've been waiting for someone to tell me. Will you, will you give me two choices? <clears throat> uh, you know, it, it, my guess is it, you'll uh, we'll forget about this by the time it all plays out in a couple of years. So go yeah, for it. Good, good. No, I mean, I, I've had a lot of fun making predictions uh, about this um, because it, it, there, there are things we can know about it because it is a coronavirus. It's not an influenza virus. So there are things we can predict. And actually, if we look at one of these endemic coronaviruses, it actually, um, it's a bovine or a cow coronavirus, and it jumped species to humans sometimes in the 1800s. So we actually know that there was a previous coronavirus, either epidemic or pandemic, that then became endemic. So, so this is gonna end one of two ways. Either enough of us will get herd immunity that this will start to circulate uh, as an endemic coronavirus. So we're gonna have the fifth endemic coronavirus. And it's, it's like the coronaviruses that circulate now, you get them every three to five years, you get them and you get a runny nose. So perhaps the second or third time you get SARS-CoV-2, you get COVID-19, it won't be as bad. So it's either gonna become endemic or so think about World War II for a second. The last time the United States mobilized all of our resources was World, World War II, right? And, and we started out with underproduction. We started out unprepared, but we moved heaven and earth. We outproduced everyone, but the outproduction, the PPE, the medicines, the vaccines, that's not what won the war. What won the war was, was the nuclear bomb. Right. So what I think is going to happen is something out of left field, something we don't even know yet is going to break through. It's going to have a breakthrough in virology, a breakthrough in immunology, a breakthrough in vaccines. Something that we don't even know is out there yet will come and uh, uh, change the history of pandemics forever because we're not going to tolerate this happening again in, in this world, are we? I wouldn't think so. I mean, I I think uh, the the economic it's, I mean, it's calamitous in what it's yeah. going to do. And I don't think we, we really felt the effects of it. And, and you hate, people get always so upset when you start talking about money and finances and things like, and the economy when it comes to, because people's lives are at stake. But you have to recognize that the reason we are so, um, we're so healthy and we have all these resources is because we have this vibrant economy. And, and the reason we can, you know, mount responses and, and actually take a couple of weeks off of, you know, is because we have all this tremendous wealth in this country. I mean, other places in the world, they don't have this luxury. And certainly 150 years ago, there was no luxury to take any, you know, a day off, right? right? You had to work all the time. You basically were always living in poverty. So um, I I think people just kind of discount that and they think, oh, well, we'll just, you know, we'll be okay. But there's a lot of, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot at stake 
by just giving up everything yeah. uh, when it comes to this well, virus. And, and you know, it's, it's sad. It, it is sad. It is tragic that people are dying, but this is an inevitable consequence of the world not planning for a pandemic for over a hundred years. You know, what, what did we think would happen? This, you know, with SARS and MERS and, and there's been emerging diseases, there's been lots of warning signs um, that this was going to happen. But, and the funny thing is you asked me in February, I, who would have thought we'd be where we are now uh, just two months ago? Oh, I know. Yeah, it's 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 remarkable how many things change, and, and actually how quickly people adapt to the changes as well. What, so you mentioned one interesting thing too back there, where you're talking about that this if this becomes endemic, which means just always sort of everywhere. How does it, something that kills people in suddenly become something that just gives you a runny nose? So it could be that once you've been exposed to it before, you do have a little bit of partial immunity to it. So that's the other unique thing about a lot of respiratory viruses, um, the immunity is not long lived. So um, people think that with influenza, immunity is not long lived. Uh, and that's not true. It's that the virus changes. And for instance, if you look at like, you remember the 2009 swine flu epidemic, well, the folks mm -hmm. that were that the folks that did well for that were actually the elderly because they had been exposed to the 1918 um, H1 virus and their, their immune system remembered it. So, so you know, immunity, immunity to influenza can be relatively long lasting, but the um, virus changes, that's why we need the shots. So what if we do have some sort of immune response to this or a vaccine that then gives us a partial immunity to it um, that the second time we get it, the third time we get it, it's not as bad. Um, the other option, you know, people like talking about mutations, there could clearly be evolution to, towards benignity. Um, and maybe I made up that term, but, but the concept is, Eric, there, there are strains out there that are killing people, and there are probably strains out there not killing people, right? So if, right. if I have someone who's asymptomatic and passes this on to someone else who's asymptomatic, the last thing I want to do is interrupt that chain right? I don't want to search and destroy asymptomatic spread of this virus um, unless that person happens to be asymptomatic because, you know, they're young and healthy. And if they passed it on to an elderly person and that person has, you know, bad consequences, well, well that, that's not good. But, but clearly there are going to be strains that are more lethal than others. If we can hunt down and kill those strains that are more lethal and leave the ones that are left, less lethal alone, um, that can actually help nature. It can be a selective pressure uh, to make this virus more benign over time. You mentioned that about pandemics and how we've had a hundred years to plan for a pandemic and we haven't. What what do you really do to plan for this? I mean, how how would it had let's say we we could have had unlimited resources, which no one ever does. What would you have done differently aside from having well being well stocked in like stuff like personal protective equipment? What would you have done differently about this whole, this whole pandemic. Yeah. And that, that's hard because um, once the fire is out, the uh, firemen go away, don't they? So, yeah. you know, we were worried about SARS. We were worried about MERS. And then as it turns out, they weren't very uh, contagious. So, um, so that said, our initial candidate vaccines were all because we were worried about SARS, right? That's the first vaccine we ran. Those are the first antibody tests we used were because of SARS. So that we've had two coronaviruses cause 
pseudo pandemics, pseudo epidemics, um, it, it, you would think that it would give the world a little bit of warning about it. And, and again, it's so easy to Monday, Monday morning quarterback this right now, right? But, but look at influenza. Every 50 to 100 years, there's, there's a epidemic, there's a pandemic that kills um, you know, millions of people. So could we work on basic research? Could we work on diagnostics? Um, could we work on uh, vaccines, on medicines? Um, it, it is the basic science research that's been so neglected in the last, what, 20, 30 years. Yeah, and you know, if you're if you're someone who's a proponent of the market, you would think that there would be someone who'd say, would recognize and say, well, there's a clearly an opportunity that if you were someone who is first the market with medications or testing equipment that specifically would get this, you know, work on coronaviruses, or, which it seems like where the next pandemic's coming from, that there would have been someone who would have entered that market and clearly not the case, or it's too hard, or you know. I don't know. Yeah. I just, it just it clearly didn't happen. It's a moonshot investment, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, there are lots of venture capitals with it that is like that, but you know, again, in today's economy, like, you know, same day ordering and there's not a lot of inventory you keep up to try and um, stay lean. And so maybe you just don't no one, th- no one sees the utility in having this until it sort of has happened. And so, Maybe that's just the uh, short-sightedness of just humanity in general. Well, and, and, you know, honestly, that brings up a good point is we are discovering all sorts of things that maybe we knew were a problem but didn't know how bad of a problem they were. So supply chain, um, and, and then also think about the changes that are going to come about with medicine, with telemedicine, with, with our, our jail systems, you know, with our, our, our criminal uh, defense systems. So there are going to be a lot of things that shake out of this. And, and, and in the end, this is going to be, this is going to be a, a time that not that we celebrate, but, but good things will come out of this. It's a reorganization of, of how you live, I suppose. And, and hope you hope it's not too disruptive and it doesn't take away too much of what it means to be a free people. Right. Yeah. Uh, Montana to get back to Montana, because Montana, I think is a reflect is a good example of, of the reversal of the orders for the coronavirus and these, the stay-at-home orders. What, uh, what is a sensible way of doing things? I mean, how, how long do you have to take to go from, you know, where we are today, whatever state you're in, to we're basically not even thinking about it anymore? So, so you know, we, we can look at the California plans for some inspiration, um, but Idaho uh, put out a plan recently uh, that I just loved. I dug the Idaho plan. And, and really, it starts off, the second page of the Idaho plan is, here's the issue, here's how we're going to measure it, and here's, you know, what our, um, you know, our metric is to measure that. So they actually say on page two of their plan, what they're going to follow, and how they're going to follow it, and they're going to publish it, it's going to be there on their website for everyone to see. And then instead of these three stupid stages, they actually have um, multiple um, a multiple different things they're going to do. So, you know, in, instead of it being phase one, you do X, Y, and Z, they're going to take a stepwise approach where you make one change and then you wait two weeks, right? And so by doing mm-hmm. that, you can actually, uh, there, there's a concept called adaptive triggers for mitigations. So what you can do, you can actually look at what's going on with your epidemiology, look at your cases, look at your ICUs, look at your vents, and say, hmm, well, opening the churches, maybe that didn't work so good. Um, instead of 50% capacity, let's go down to 25% capacity. And, and 
by looking at your numbers, by making small measured changes, you can actually hopefully see a bit of a cause uh, effect and know what is going on so that what I fear with the federal plan, if things go wrong, well, just shelter in place, shut her down, right? And I don't want to do yeah. that. Once we open it up, we got to keep opening it up. And, you know, it's going to be hard to keep the bars closed an extra eight weeks because they're, you know, last on the list. Oh, by the way, bars are opening up in Montana right away. Um, they're opening up before <laughs> the gyms. How does that make any sense? So, yeah. um, so, you know, but so fundamentally, you know, movie theaters, bars, um, sports stadiums, um, these things are going to have to stay shut longer because we're worried about, you know, a large increase in the R not a large amount of spread. We want to do things that keep the R not right around one where this has a low burn instead of these, you know, conflagrations, these forest fires that burn out of control and use up all of our ICU resources and you get excess mortality. So um, doing these things with adaptive triggers, understanding that if cases uh, increase, if they double twice in a, a week period, or if they get above 20, um, if you look at your uh, Indiana, for instance, has a really awesome pie chart that shows the number of ICU beds they have, the number of COVID people in there, and the number of other people in there. Same thing with their ventilators. So you can actually look and see when we make changes, well, two weeks later, what happened to the data? And then you don't have to shut her down. You can just make small tweaks instead of um, reverting back to shelter in place. Yeah, that makes so much more sense. And, and this has been my problem from the start with all this, um, the shutdowns that have been going on here in Michigan and I'm sure elsewhere, is that it seems very random, arbitrary. And, and it's political, there are no isn't metrics. It? It's not scientific, it's political. Right. It has been sort of, it, it has been sort of a, a one-upsmanship of, of, I want to be the toughest on, you know, stopping the disease or whatever. And there's, there are no metrics and there's no, there's no idea of what your ultimate goal is, right? I mean, if your goal is to prevent hospitals from getting overrun, well, then that should be sort of your, met, then show your metrics and show where it is a problem or where it's not. But there's, and then, then you can know if you're, you know, you've got room to go one way or the other, but it, we've had, it's sort of like just people have just, going by their gut instinct, which is, you know, from the state house, which is crazy. Yeah. And, and, you know, there was for a week or two there, there was the democratic governors trying to be more aggressive than the other person. Oh, I was more aggressive than they were like, you know, aggression is a badge of honor. Well, it's like, you know, I take a gram of Tylenol for my headache. Well, I'm going to take two grams of Tylenol. That's going to work better. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. it, and it's, it's, it's legislating to the, the lowest common denominator. You know, I feel horrible that there there is an outbreak in Detroit, but does that mean that the UP needs to shut her down, right? Yeah, right. No, I mean that's that's absolutely the case that you have you have people who are, you know, trying to trying to, and you see this on social media. They are trying to out virtue signal um, other people that they care more about lives, that they care more about the health of people than someone it. else because they're more willing to do go out of their way. Um, and I feel like oftentimes there are people who can afford to go out and there are other people who can't. And, the, and those are the people they're disparaging, which I don't know, that's, again, why it becomes politicized is not surprising to me, but it's just disappointing. Do you see us uh, by the end of the year, we're, we're sort of all back to normal in the United States? Or do you think we're going to have like another surge in the winter when it, flu season hits again and we, we have a, you know, extra stress on the system because of, we have the typical flu season, whether it's typical or atypical, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're, we're not going to get back to normal for three or four or five years if normal is what things were like in January and February. So we're going to get to a new normal, I think, pretty quick, um, where we adopt, we change, we do things differently. You know, there's one-way signs in your aisles of your, your grocery store now, you know, and, and you're going to stand six feet away from the person in front of you, and there's going to be a, a, a piece of glass in front of you in the cash. You know, that, that's just the way things are, are going to be. So uh, I, don't, I don't think that coronavirus is seasonal. It's not. If you, if you look for it, you know, year-round in daycares, you're going to find it. Um, yeah. It's not influenza. And then, like, the studies they look at where they see some seasonality of the coronavirus, well, that's because these are studies where if you're sick, you call your doctor and then they swab your nose. Well, when are you sick? Right. You're sick in the fall and winter. So, and it's a co-infection. So you find it there with the influenza, with the RSV. So certainly um, what is worrisome about the fall is that we are going to have, you know, fall respiratory season. So we're going to have, um, you know, other things that commonly happen when the weather changes and when we, we get a little closer together and, and spread more germs. So the fall is going to be challenging, but I, I don't think that that doesn't mean that we're not going to have challenges this summer. So there, there's not going to yeah. be any time in the next couple of years that we don't have challenges from this. Yeah, I'm just I look at my my uh, profession, you know, anesthesia, and sort of the the extraordinary efforts we have to go to try and prevent co-infections and sort of like you know the spread of it, and it's really a you know a pain in the butt. Yeah. Um, so it's actually it's de- well, and, it's depressing to think it'll be like that for years now. And, and think about this, you know, we trained right when standard precautions were taking place, but there were doctors, you know, not ten years older than that than us that that are like, well, why do I have to put on gloves when I draw blood? Yeah, you know. So before right. HIV was around, um, you know, people didn't do any precautions, and standard precautions were a big deal for them. Well, guess what? You're going to be wearing an N95 mask, my friend, for years to come. Yeah, that's depressing because, as I mentioned on Twitter, that if there are certain things you have to be very careful about eating for lunch before you don your N95 mask, <laughs> um, I would say that beef jerky is a bad choice. Are we going to have, do you think, um, when you look at professional sports, I mean, we have a friend who's a professional football player, and he, I mean, do you think that that's going to be happening, or do you think it's going to have to try and happen without fans, or what? How do you think that's going to be this fall or even college sports, college football and basketball? Yeah, so we're going to have to watch out for the super spreader events. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to have a football season for a good long time. Because if you think about it, what do you do when they're in the stands? You're yelling and spreading all your germs on the people in front of you. Yeah. So and, and something else people haven't thought about. What about the choir? What about that super spreading event there in, in Washington with the choir? So, you know, if you go to church, you're not going to be singing in church for a couple of years. You're not going to have choir practice in high school for a couple of years. So anything that you raise your voice at, concerts, nightclubs, you know, those kind of things, th- those are not going to be socially acceptable for quite a while. So I don't think we're going to have people packed in stadiums anytime soon. That's hard to imagine that, that people will be okay with that. I mean, I... Not denying that the fact that may be the prudent thing to do, but it's just hard to imagine that people will be okay with that sort of new reality because that's certainly not <laughs> that's certainly not anything people are really right. considering that I've really heard and we talk right. about. Well, when you think about Louisiana, which was quote unquote doing fine until Mardi Gras, right? And then so a single event can take a city from doing fine to the you know the the, the edge essentially. 
Well, this has been um, not a very uplifting discussion. <laughs> Thanks <but>. so much. <laughs> but this is what happens. You talk about the coronavirus, right? I mean, I think, you know, this is sort of uh, the way things are now. Well, we're in a public health emergency, right? This is something that has not happened in your lifetime. It's not happened in, in you know, our grandparents' lifetime. But it, it is the truth. This is a true public health emergency and, and everything is going to change. But let, let, me, let me not be too depressing. You remember my, my nuclear bomb ending World War II? Right, also yeah. remember that that ended world wars forever too, right? So this new technology um, changed the way that humans um, have aggression towards each other. So I, I am optimistic, Eric, that this will be the first and last pandemic we're going to have to face in our life. So you just think there'll be some some event or some something will some innovator will come up with something that's going to probably fix this. Have faith in but, human um, ingenuity. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's some there's a lot of truth to that, yeah, right? I mean, I mean have, is, this, yeah. is this virus going to beat humans, or are humans going to beat this virus? Yeah, well, we've we've we're so far we've beaten everything else, so I guess there's no reason to think that well this will beat us, but um, just kind of hard to imagine how things are going to be for a while. But I guess that's the reality, of the way things are going to be. Uh, you are also in totally unrelated to this, but you, you run a website called FI Physician, which is financial independence. Can you briefly talk about what that is? Well, uh, sure. Yeah. So I, I um, kind of lost, I lost faith in medicine. Um, it stopped being a way to serve people. It's, it started being a way to um, push buttons, which then sent off a code, which then sent off a bill, which was incomprehensible. Um, and, and I wanted to get out. And so I actually discovered financial independence and um, because I'm thrifty, my, my wife will say cheap, but um, I actually have saved a lot of money. I, I didn't spend a lot. Uh, costs are pretty low here in Montana. So when I discovered financial independence, I, I discovered that I, I was actually financially independent. So I have uh, I don't have to work for money anymore. Um, and that discovery really changed my life. That that imagine going to work on Monday not because you had to, because you wanted to. So that yeah. made medicine fun for me again. But that said, I'm, I'm looking for an encore career. So I, um, I, I uh, took my CFP exam. Um, I, I, uh, I started a website. I started blogging. Um, and I wound up being a retirement income planner for DIY physicians. So looking at the complexity of retirement um, is actually very similar to infectious diseases in, in, in the scope and the problems and the interactivity of of the whole and yet this new phenomenon going on. So, so it's, it's been a fun process. And um, of course that business dried up when the pandemic hit, but luckily my interest in public health and uh, epidemiology and infectious disease and, and frankly, the history of pandemics has um, made my writing more interesting in the last couple, couple of weeks. Yeah. Well, thanks for your contributions. Again, this will be all on the, uh, the paradox.com website. Uh, David Graham, thank you so much. It's been nice catching up with you after all these years back in Oakmas High School. My pleasure. Let's do it again. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.